From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday, another busy show. And we are starting off once again talking about the future of policing, but not only in the city of Surrey. What does changed, improved, you could say, uh, new legislation, what will that mean for policing not only in Surrey, but in the entire province? As you know, BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth has introduced legislation. It is going to require the city of Surrey to provide policing with a municipal force. That was the latest kind of lob in this ongoing fight, even though we have not really been told how that's going to play out, what the city of Surrey is going to do in response. Instead, the city saying they are still going ahead with the petition to the Supreme Court of BC asking for a judicial review. Well, joining us once again to talk more about this is Wally Opal, former BC Attorney General, also former chair of the Surrey Police Transition Task Force. Thank you so much for being with us once again. Um, my pleasure. I'm being. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a regular in your program now. <laughs> when do you have your coffee break? <laughs> we we don't. <laughs> but yes, you're you're almost like a, a co-host now. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have a lot of knowledge of this, as m- mentioned, as the former chair of the Surrey Police Transition Task Force, also a former Attorney General. We had the introduction of this legislation that Mike Farnworth basically said, this is this is it. You need to now move on with the Surrey Police Service. We heard that from the Premier as well. Uh, it's only been introduced at this point. But what does this mean, do you think, for the future of policing in Surrey and elsewhere? Well, what they said was it was this legislation was introduced in order to provide clarity to any jurisdiction that wants to change its policing model but what it really does is it strengthens the position of the the solicitor general and the provincial government to determine what is in the best interest of public safety in any particular city that wants to change so what happens is that does a particular model chosen by the city meet the standards that are required for public safety in july as you know the solicitor general as the chief law enforcement officer of the province, who has the ultimate responsibility and the authority to decide what is an appropriate model of policing for a city based on public city public safety consideration, said that the city had failed to meet its obligation to return to the RCMP. They did so because the Solicitor General said the evidence showed that the RCMP was short some 1,500 officers, and they didn't have the necessary policing personnel to police Surrey. And at the same time, Mike Farnworth said, and gave the green light to the SPS, the city police, the city, Surrey City Policing Service, to proceed with the transition. But as you know, since that time, uh, uh, not too much has happened because Surrey had uh, decided that what they want to do is they want to re-examine that. In any event, now... What is going to happen in this act is Surrey will have a legal duty to obey the law as set out with this new legislation. So once a transition plan has been improved by the minister, the city will have a legal obligation to comply with the ultimate authority of the province to proceed. The province also dealt with the claim of of Surrey that 
this is going to be formidably expensive. And they have said that it was going to cost another $318 million to uh, do the transition. The province relies on an independent firm that said the difference is really $30 million, and they've been, provide, they've been prepared to provide $150 million for the transition. So that's where we are. And uh, you know, ultimately, the uh, city of Surrey, if they do not comply with this uh, legislation, then uh, they'll be in breach of it, and the province will have the, the ultimate authority to proceed. And they could, uh, they could appoint an administrator who would then take the part of the, the, city, the city police board and uh, govern the transition. But that's the last-ditch effort that would be required. So, What are we looking at, though, as far as timeline, in that this legislation was introduced? It hasn't been adopted. It's not in place yet. And then would it be retroactive? Absolutely, it would be retroactive. Uh, there's no reason why it wouldn't be retroactive. Retro- legislation is not retroactive where it, the particular legislation affects adversely the rights of any particular party. But this is something that's been in the works for a long time. Uh, keep in mind that it was Surrey that wanted the transition to begin with in 2018. They voted unanimously at that time, City Council did, to remove the RCMP and proceed with their own police force. And uh, so this, not, this is not anything new. And uh, we've been proceeding along that basis since then. What about the timeline, though, with, with, again, the fact that the legislation at this point is introduced? It's not passed. So is it leaving the citizens of Surrey kind of in limbo in that even if that is what is going to happen, Surrey clearly isn't stepping back. They're still going ahead with petitioning the court, looking for a judicial review. So will it not be like this then until that legislation is actually passed? Well, you're right that the legislation has to be passed in order to comply with the standards set out in what Mike Farnworth said yesterday. However, having said that, the message is quite clear that they're going to pass the legislation and they have a majority in the House. And uh, I don't think the opposition has said anything that they would vote against this transition. I don't know. Uh, but that's a political consideration. But uh, clearly the province has made it clear where they're going to proceed, and that is that they've decided, based on their facts, that the uh, city of Surrey cannot go back to the RCMP, and they must proceed with the transition that they initially wanted in 2018. Could the province then, if if the city doesn't comply, or in the province's mind, the city is taking too long to comply, could the province then step in and take over and and effectively cancel the city of Surrey's contract with the RCMP? Absolutely. That's one thing that's clear in the legislation. They have the power to cancel the agreement with the RCMP, and they could appoint in a temporary way an administrator who would then have the administrative authority and the power to replace uh, the Surrey Police Board, which is a governing body of the police service. So effectively, would that be the province the province taking over policing in the city of Surrey? Yes, and uh, I know that that's something that would be done as a last resort, and that's the intent of the legislation, to do it only as a last resort, only if Surrey disobeys the terms of this particular legislation.
What would become of then, do you think, of, of those who are sitting on the Surrey Police Board? Well, I would, I'm speculating here now that I would think that temporarily uh, they would be uh, uh, they would be replaced uh, by an administrator who would have the authority to govern the police uh, board, the police service, and that's what the police board does now. The reason the Surrey, Surrey in 2018 wanted to go this route is because they wanted to have a police board that would govern local conditions and be governing the police service as opposed to the RCMP, which is governed from Ottawa. Right. Right. One of the the parts of this as well that's getting a lot of attention is this when the public safety minister said this will also make it so once a decision has been made, if a city or municipality is changing its policing and once that decision has been okayed by the province, there's no going back. Uh, What if what if a city changes its mind, though? Well, I would think that you'd have pretty compelling evidence if you change your mind. I think in democracies you can always change your mind, but but here the uh, evidence uh, that the city relies on was found wanting by the uh, by the province. As I said a moment ago, the Mike Farmer said in July of this year that you can't go back to the RCMP because they don't have the personnel. There's a shortage of officers, and you can't go back to them. And having a local police force is the proper and right way to go. So uh, so I would think that it would be extremely difficult, extremely difficult for a city to go back to the original model that it had. And keep in mind the formidable costs that are incurred in doing all of this. You know, you've decided once that you want to go to an independent police force, independent of the RCMP. And then uh, four years later, you change your mind and uh, you're going to be saddled with a lot of costs because the costs of policing are borne by the city, not by the province. So all these costs that have been piling up now are the costs of Surrey's. So uh, I would think that the cities would be pretty careful if they want to go back to a force that they voted out. So. Uh, you mentioned as well, it doesn't appear that this legislation, uh, that, that there is opposition to it, but it also doesn't appear that there is an urgency to get this passed. And uh, what do you think will happen, though, as far as, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to make the assumption that uh, Mike Farnworth, the NDP, would like to get this passed as soon as possible. Well, I would think so, and I would think they would hurry it through the through the House, and there'd be second reading for the legislation, and uh, there'd be some... Uh, some uh, questions asked by the opposition to ensure that whatever they're doing is the right thing and is in the public interest. But uh, as uh, you've indicated and and I've indicated that there doesn't seem to be a lot of opposition in the legislature to the movement toward an independent police force. Right. And and Wally, just just to to clarify as well, then, as far as uh, what's going on, because certainly we've heard from the mayor of Surrey. We know where Brenda Locke stands on this. We know that she is still fighting uh, to have that judicial review to keep the RCMP. Do you see this playing out in that? uh, I know you said it was a last resort, but but she certainly hasn't changed course up until this point. Do you see it playing out that it is going to be the province is going to take over policing in the city of Surrey? I would think so. I want to mention just something that you've just alluded to, and that is the process of going to the Supreme Court. So they filed documents last week asking for a judicial review. As a uh, 
former Supreme Court judge, I sat on a few judicial reviews, and it's usually an uphill struggle because in a judicial review, the city would have to prove that the decision of the Solicitor General was incorrect, wrong in principle, wrong in jurisdiction, and wrong as far as the evidence is concerned. So they would have to show that the decision made by the province uh, in July would be incorrect based on all of the evidence and all of the facts. And courts are very reluctant to get involved and overrule cities or lesser bodies, uh, for want of a better term, and step in their decisions, uh, step in their shoes. Because the, the decision of the Supreme Court judge who would ultimately hear the application for judicial review is a decision based on the evidence that's filed before them. And the judge can't say, well, in my view, right. uh, sir, you'd be better off with their own police force or with the RCMP. That's not the authority of the, that's not the within the purview of the Supreme Court judge. The judge would have to decide, was the Solicitor General wrong? Did the Solicitor General base his or her decision on something that was patently wrong? And those are the things. And so it's an uphill struggle for the city. All right. Wally Opal, we'll have to leave it there for today. But right. thank you again so much for doing this. Thanks, Jill. Well, it is, I keep saying the eve of cold and flu season, but for many people, we might already be in that season. And that means there are going to be a lot of visits to various hospitals and BC Children's Hospital, the emergency department, well, it is going to be very busy as well. So clinicians are advising families, there are different care options when it comes to the urgency of your child's health and what specifically your symptoms or your child's symptoms are and what they need. Joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Christy Hay, Executive Director with the Clinical Service Delivery at BC Children's Hospital. Christy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know we've talked about this in the past and there have been very long wait times, especially at the emergency department at BC Children's Hospital. What are the most important things as far as advice you give to parents and families about when you come to the hospital and when you don't? Yeah, thanks for the question, Jill. Well, you know, as parents, we know our children best and um, we can tell if there's something that's just not right with them and it's not sitting with us. And so we encourage parents, you know, uh, that know their child's best and when to seek medical care. Things we're really concerned about is if they have breathing problems. So they're working really hard to breathe. It seems faster than normal. Um, if they're coughing quite a bit and they can't control that coughing or if they're wheezing and they're maybe on asthmatic medication, but it's not helping with their wheeze. The other thing that we encourage parents to do with young infants, less than three months of age that have fevers, to seek um, care in an emergency if they can't get into their um, local provider. Or if they're really sleepy and they're hard to wake, they might be vomiting or having lots of diarrhea and they're not able to keep um, fluid down. Um, Those are things that we get pretty concerned with and and would encourage families to seek care in emergency. When it comes to sort of injuries, things like head injuries, when a child or youth has lost consciousness, that's something that they should seek care for. Or if they have a protruding bone um, that is bleeding, um, that is something that we would want them to seek care for. When it comes to mental health, if a child does have um, suicidal plans, um, so if they want to hurt themselves, 
um, and they have a plan of maybe ending their life, we encourage families to seek emergency care in that case as well. Uh, you mentioned as well in, in uh, some cases where uh, talking to a family doctor or, or going to a walk-in clinic might be uh, more suitable. What about for families, though, and there are so many families that don't have access to family doctors? Yeah, we understand that um, family doctors can be hard to get into these days, and that's one of the reasons why we released our news release today was to encourage families to know when it, when they could seek emergency care and what other options might be available to them. We're very lucky in BC to have the resource of HealthLink BC, so that's our 811 number that we can call, and at the other end, um, families have access to a registered nurse and sometimes even a physician or other provider level that they can speak to and work through those symptoms that their child might be having that can help them make that decision to seek care either at a local walk-in clinic if they're available, an urgent primary care centre or their local emergency department. Uh, do you find that uh, m- more so, I think, when we're dealing with children or, or parents are dealing with children, uh, do they tend to, to err on the side of better going to the ER than, than not, if you're really not sure? And is that what leads to a lot of the really lengthy wait times that we often see? Well, I think that having a sick child is stressful for families. And I think that as parents, we you know want our children to be well. And the thing with kids is they can get sick really fast um, and they can get better really fast. Their their resiliency is just um, amazing. And so I I think that, again, parents know their child best. And so if they feel that's the place they need to be, then emergencies will see them. Emergencies across our province are, um, you know, open and BC Children's is open 24-7. But if they do present with something that is, not um, life-threatening, that they may experience a wait time, but they will be seen. Right. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it just might take, depending, I would imagine, depending on the day and, and how many other people are there, uh, how busy it is. Uh, we've talked a bit recently about pharmacists in BC getting uh, more, being able to provide more types of direct care and, and having kind of uh, a bigger mandate. How do you see pharmacists being part of this or what advice do you have about parents with, with pharmacists being able to do more? Well, I think it's um, beneficial to our overall healthcare system that pharmacists have been granted um, a, an expanded scope to deal with some of the less urgent issues. And I would just encourage families to be aware of what a pharmacist c- can or cannot do. Um, and they're pretty clear when you go there and you talk to them um, at your local pharmacy if you're seeking something uh, regarding a prescription. But they can't necessarily diagnose um, like a physician. So uh, that's something just to be aware of uh, when it comes to that scope. And other services as well, uh, dialing or HealthLink BC, uh, calling 811 to get advice that way. Uh, what advice do you give parents? Again, if you're, if you're maybe you're pretty sure that you don't need to go to the emergency department or you want to get a bit more information, you need to, to kind of talk to somebody about what your child is going through. Yeah, 811 is available 24-7, and parents can talk to a registered nurse on the other line, and they give a lot of great resources that families can implement in their home environment. So, for example, if a child has a fever, and not all fevers are bad, especially in those um, 
children and youth that have all their vaccinations up to date. The fever is a normal way the body, um, you know, attacks a virus and and helps us get better. And um, there's lots of availability to Tylenol and Advil. And um, a nurse would walk you through those sorts of things and then provide you guidance if um, that nurse felt that you did need to seek care in an emergency department and they would encourage you to go. All right. And and looking at the numbers as well, and these were uh, the numbers that were put out by uh, BC Children's Hospital, the emergency department uh, specifically. So in in 2022, uh, providing care to more than 13,000 children and youth, and that was uh, from October to December. And uh, these numbers show that more than one third, maybe they could have been treated non-urgently, that a lot of those were respiratory, um, whether it was uh, congestion, cough and congestion. So is it really getting the message out that that yes those things do need attention and and don't ignore them but there are a lot of those cases that are showing up in the emergency department that really don't need to be there yeah again again parents know their kids best but mild coughs and colds are sort of a a normal body's response to building immunity and um, the most common uh, thing families can do is um, you know keep those vaccinations up to date um, they can teach their child how to do good hand washing, good respiratory etiquette, coughing into your elbow, and and if they are unwell, to stay at home, um, away from other people, or if they are immunocompromised, um, you know, to stay to stay at home when they're unwell as well. And often we think it is a, a, an emergency to when we have a sick child, but um, not all sick children need to come to emergency. And again, we'll see them, um, but not in order of of time of presentation necessarily. We do operate that we see the sickest children first and encourage families just to be really aware of what are some of the strategies that they can do to help their child get faster um, and also the other options for seeking medical care that we have available. Right, and which uh, makes a lot of sense. Is it also, uh, you know, if you're going to uh, an emergency department that does have a lengthy wait, uh, sitting around uh, in, a, in a room, in a waiting room with a bunch of people who are also sick, uh, I would imagine too that also kind of puts you in a position, uh, you probably don't want to be in a position where you're being exposed to you don't even know what for this extended period of time if you don't need to be. Yeah, one of the things we encourage families to do is if they're able to not bring additional family members who might be well, um, because you you are going to be exposed potentially to other illnesses while you wait in an emergency. Um, We do now have a mask mandate that has been implemented um, effective October 3rd in all of our healthcare centers across the province. So families, when they do arrive, are asked to clean their hands and to with hand sanitizer and then to put on a mask. Um, but as a parent myself, it's excruciatingly um, painful when you're waiting in that emergency department environment. So, you know, bringing some snacks, just check with your nurse, um, you know, for snacks and juices um, if you're bringing for your child or some, you know, activities that they can do while you sit in It is uh, all very good and very timely advice. Christy, hey, thank you so much for joining us and going through this today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jill.
Well, there was some good news with a bit of slowing when it comes to inflation, but I know everybody, I I think I can safely say everybody, unless you have some very, very uh, good skills when it comes to coupons or finding deals, everybody is finding things still very expensive when you're at the grocery store, the cost of things continuing to be very high. And if you are somebody with a mortgage and you have it coming up for renewal, my guess is you have some anxiety over that as well. Also, we've heard about shrinkflation, but now there is another little, uh, well, it's called skimpflation, and we're going to find out more about that as well. Joining me on the line to talk more about this is Rabina Ahmed-Hak, personal finance expert, also the host of For What It's Worth here on CKNW, Saturday at 9, Sunday at 5 a.m. Rabina, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I want to get to skimpflation, but before we do that, uh, I am curious. My guess is uh, you've been talking to people a lot about interest rates and about inflation and about how to kind of weather that and how people are dealing with it. I mean, it's been basically the major topic of conversation for the last two years. Uh, First, it was rock bottom interest rates and housing prices being, uh, uh, you know, at a point where every month they were going up double digits. Everyone worried whether they've lost uh, the the ability to buy a home. And now it's the other side of it where home prices are falling, but interest rates are up. Um, As you know, 475 basis points since uh, March of last year. And, you know, those with a variable rate mortgage, they've been feeling that pain all throughout. Uh, Many have been even called to ask to increase their payments in order to uh, make sure that part of their payment goes towards principal. But then there is another storm, so to speak, that's coming with fixed rate mortgages. When they come up for renewal, they'll be renewing in a much higher interest rate environment. And human nature is, even though you know interest rates are higher, it's not like you're doing anything proactively for when you renew uh, to make sure you can afford those payments. So what do you think people are going to be be dealing with? Because you're right, it is human nature. You know it's coming, but maybe you don't want to address it or you or you think, okay, well, I'll just deal with it when that happens. But what do you think, what are people actually going to be dealing with when it comes to the, the amount that they're going to be looking at? I know it, it's, it will vary based on your mortgage payments, but that amount that people are going to be hit with. So first, the problem is, is that some people have mortgage rates fixed at less than 2%. I've heard as low as 1.39%. And the best fixed rate you can get right now, of course, you know, it depends on which bank you go to, is around 6 to 7%. And so immediately you can go in and you can do the calculation on your payment. Now, economists are saying that in some cases, payments are going to go up 40 to 60%. Now, you can go in and see what your own numbers are, and that does not reflect everybody's payment. I don't want everyone to think, oh, my payments are going up by 60%. But easily, you could see if your payment, say, for example, was $1,500, it could go up to maybe $21, $22, and that's $600 bucks out of your uh, pocket that you did not budget for uh, maybe when you first signed up for this house. Uh, and like you said, it's not like everybody, even if you, if you were so disciplined that you wanted to start putting that extra money away, uh, not a lot of people are in that position where you have that amount of extra money at the end of the month to be putting it away anyway. Yeah, I mean, we do, there's two things that happened. One was the stress test. So when we did the stress test, if you go for a mortgage, they qualify you at a rate two percentage points higher than your contract rate or the Bank of Canada fixed rate. Um, so a lot of people at that time could show, yes, I could pay my mortgage at that higher rate. But how many of us actually go and then say, okay, let me start stockpiling this cash for when interest rates rise? No one does that. And the other side of it is that you have a fixed rate mortgage, you see interest rates going up, 
but you're not actually proactively doing anything about it. The best thing anyone with a fixed rate mortgage can do now is make as many lump sum payments as you can because you're immediately going to save money. You know the future that that money is going to get more expensive. Do yourself a favor by, uh, by paying that money down uh, now. All right. So if, you, if you've been saving for a rainy day, this is the rainy day. Yeah, I mean, rainy day funds are often for emergencies. So I wouldn't say, you know, deplete your emergency fund to put into your mortgage because that's for like if you lose your job or something else happens. Remember, payments are monthly. It's not like you're owed all the money at once. And if for some case, for some, in some cases, cash flow is more important. You don't want to tie all your money up uh, by putting a big lump sum payment, not having any extra cash on the side. But if you're, you know, if you have some extra money or if you're doing other things with your money that maybe that you could just edit a little bit, that money's going to go a long way because you know when you renew it's going to get more expensive. All right. That is uh, good advice for anybody that is in that scenario. Now, I want to talk about this uh, idea of skimpflation. We've heard, again, of shrinkflation when packages become smaller. We're not getting as much and it's still costing the same. But what is skimpflation? So skimpflation is when a company basically reduces the quality of a product or a service. So when it comes to a product, they may, you know, a cookie that you bought for ages, now all of a sudden they've, they've swapped out real butter for margarine or natural sugar for corn syrup, right, or more water content. And all of a sudden you bring the product home, you're like, it doesn't taste the same, it doesn't do the same thing. And I've actually been anecdotally hearing also from restaurants that buy products raw that it's not creating the same dish that they've been serving their customers for years because the raw product has changed, the, the way that they formulate it when they make their cakes or cookies or pasta or whatever it is that they're making um, because the, the manufacturer has changed the way they formulate it. There's nothing illegal about that. As long as you label the ingredients, you don't even need to let people know. Uh, the other side of shrink, uh, rather skimp inflation is less service available when you were used to going into a store and there'd be four or five uh, salespeople to serve the, the customers. Now you go in and there's two people. And that's happened a lot uh, in my experience where you go in, I was at a furniture store recently, and there was two people serving a quite a large department store, about 20 people that needed to be served. And some people left frustrated because at a furniture store, you can't get much done unless you talk to a salesperson. You can't really buy much uh, unless you go through them. So those are some examples of skimpflation, ways that companies try to save money and in my, in my, from my point of view, try to fool the customer into thinking they're buying, buying and getting the same product or service. Right, because especially when you're talking about a, a food product or something that you've been used to buying, I mean, who actually reads the ingredients after you've bought, if you purchased it, even maybe the first time you purchase it, but especially if you've been used to, to getting this over a period of time, you just expect it would be the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've noticed this in sandwiches that I buy from certain restaurants. It used to be real cheese, and now it's processed cheese, which obviously is quite much cheaper. Uh, so that brings their cost down. So you may complain, oh, why it's got processed cheese now? And they'll say, well, that's what we, how we make it. So it's, you, know, you can lose customers. It's a pretty risky uh, uh, move that a company makes because if the customer gets annoyed, they're not only going to go to another product. They might even tell people, hey, did you hear that the sandwich at the store now has processed cheese, and then nobody wants to buy it? because they get that information from friends, and that's the worst kind of review, right, when you hear that a product doesn't taste as good as it used to or look as good as it used to. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that's what companies are doing. They're basically uh, they're, they're bringing down the quality of their product and service in order to save cash. Hmm. 
I, I remember this happening a few years ago. I think it's a few years ago now with butter and people who were big bakers noticed that the butter wasn't creaming as well and it wasn't the products, their baked goods weren't coming out the same and it came out that butter, they were they were not using the, the higher quality ingredients. Again, they were they were kind of filling it and, and like you said, nothing illegal, but the product itself was very, very different. Yeah, that's a perfect example of skimflation and it's not something new. I mean, it's been happening for decades since businesses uh, try to save money. You'll often notice that when a business first starts out, the quality of the product is often higher. And then as they get more and more popular try to try to save money and produce more mass quantities of anything, uh, they'll try to uh, they'll try to participate in skimflation where they'll maybe get, you know, not as good, uh, not as good uh, raw materials to make that product. And it does have a knock-on effect, like you said, with the bakers. And that's exactly what I was hearing is that, you know, I've been buying this product forever to make this, this, this dish for my customers. It doesn't taste the same. My customers are now complaining. And when you get to the bottom of it, it's because the raw material has changed. And as consumers, then, like you said, it's word of mouth. It's calling out companies if you choose to do that. Because otherwise, I guess your choices are you have to go find another product that's probably going to be more expensive or uh, figure out how to how to get by or how to how to not be taken by the skimflation. Yeah, I mean, consumers, uh, like I said, it's not illegal for companies to do this as long as they label the ingredients uh, properly. Um, consumers can, you know, the best way is to protest with your wallet to buy another product, immediately sends the message that I'm not happy with this anymore. You can call customer service. I know that, that there, you know, a lot of people don't like doing that and let them know that I've noticed that your product has changed. You know, we, the, oftentimes if enough people make that complaint and the company realizes they're losing customers, they may go back to their original formula and that, uh, and that, that would make customers happy though. That will continue to, uh, keep them as loyal, uh, loyal clients or loyal customers. All right. It's something, definitely something to look out for. Uh, Rubina, as always, thank you so much. It was great to talk with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Well, how to safely and legally forage for mushrooms? It is a question some people have been asking, and we have the answers to those questions. Dr. Mary Burby is a professor in the UBC Department of Botany and joins me now on the line. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very pleased to be here. I know this is something that, that people uh, people have been doing for years, and a lot of people are really into this. Uh, I've also noticed it seems like there are a lot more mushrooms that have just been sprouting up, whether it's on boulevards and grassy areas near sidewalks uh, and such. Am I imagining that, or is this? Uh, do we know is this a good year for mushrooms? It's a much better year than last year was. Uh, last year was much of a much in much of BC. It was a true mushroom desert due to the drought over the summer. So it's wonderful to see the mushrooms popping up all over again. And is it becoming more popular, more and more people looking at foraging for mushrooms? I think it is. There's a bit of a cyclical nature to the whole thing. But it seems as if a lot of people are quite interested right now due to some, well, for example, that wonderful movie, The Fantastic Fungi. (laughs) Right, exactly. So uh, let's talk more about this because you do have to know what you're doing. It's not like flower picking or something else where you're just, uh, just, you know, drawn to something that you like and and that's the one you go for. Uh, You need to, I understand, approach mushrooms with a lot of caution. What is the, the, I guess, most important advice you give people? Well, I started imagining somebody who decides they're going to make a salad from everything that they can find in a local park. Um, That would be a really bad idea because there are a lot of plants that are toxic. 
And so they probably get a whopping great stomach ache for that. So just as you approach collecting plants to eat, you need to approach collecting mushrooms to eat by getting to know the individual species so that you know for sure the ones that are really poisonous. And also you need to be really sure about the small number of species that you're going to try to eat. All right. So, And I understand, so we have more than, is it more than 200 species of mushrooms in B.C.? A lot more, I think, yes. Okay. And how many, do we know how many of those are actually edible? Well, the truth is there are only a, there's only a small handful that people regularly eat. Let's say maybe as many as 20 species. And then there's also a small handful that are really not good for you. Maybe a, a, a five species that could potentially kill you, and then perhaps another mm, 20 that might give you a stomachache. And then besides that, there's a whole large number of mushrooms that you just wouldn't want to bother with for one reason or another due to the fact that they're tough or the flavor is not very good or something like that. All right. So is it uh, geography as far as there are certain areas that you are, are okay to go to or certain areas you should avoid? Or is it the mushroom itself that you need to know exactly what you're looking for? It's absolutely the mushroom itself that you need to know because in the safest and most familiar areas in Vancouver, some of the deadliest mushrooms grow. So what are we looking for? Well, I guess uh, we could go about this two ways, either uh, telling us which, one, which are the ones you are looking for if you're <laughs> wanting to eat them or what are you looking for to avoid them? Well, how about if we start with one that's really poisonous? Sure. Um, so the one that worries everyone the most is called the death cap. And there are a couple of reasons why that's a concern. One is that if an adult eats just two of them, they've got a 50% chance of dying. And another reason why this one is a particular concern is that it's a beautiful mushroom. It looks about the right size for a human being to saute in butter, and it grows near us. So it's actually an invasive species. It's common in boulevards and in people's yards. And what does it look like? It is typically, it color varies. It can be whitish or it can be yellowish or brownish. And uh, another problem is that the character that really um, nails its identification is below ground. So the entire mushroom comes from a sort of a membranous cup at the base called a vulva. And if you take a knife and dig down to the base of the mushroom, you can find that. But if you just pick the mushroom, you might never see it. Hmm. And and so that's that's a pretty scary thing when you're saying just if you ingest two of them, that that could be enough to kill you. Yeah, there was that child who died. The three-year-old died in Victoria. It's quite a few years ago now, maybe about five years ago, maybe more. Um, the parents were attracted to the mushroom due to its beauty. And they cooked it up, and their child died. Yeah, I remember that. That was a horrible, such a sad, yeah. sad story. Uh, are yeah. there other characteristics of, of of it in either texture or or taste or anything else that kind of gives it away that you know you're dealing with a death cap or a very poisonous mushroom? Absolutely not. And so it's it's utterly beautiful, and apparently it tastes good, although very few people have eaten it more than once. And it. Um, it's common, so there's there's nothing there that really raises a, a warning flag. Uh, so that's where it comes in, I suppose, being educated and, and knowing the characteristics and knowing what it looks like. Exactly, and there are some excellent pictures on the web. The BC Centers for Disease Control have uh, put up websites 
that warn people about death cap mushrooms, and they have some nice images of death cap mushrooms in all different stages of development. All right, so that that is good to to know about that one. Uh, are there other ones that are poisonous, or like you said, will if you eat them, will we'll make you feel not so good? Other ones that people need to avoid? Mm, there are. So there are mushrooms that look an awful lot like grocery store button mushrooms or um, like portobellos. They're fairly common around here. And some of those mushrooms in the genus Agaricus, with the, along with the grocery store mushroom, are in fact edible. But some of them will give you quite an interesting night of gastrointestinal upset. Um, you get a clue with those sometimes if they're going to be poisonous. Some of the ones that are going to cause upsets have a smell of creosote or phenol, and they might turn a little bit yellow at the base of the stem if you scratch it. But not everybody can smell the phenolic smell, and the yellowing color might not be present. Hmm. So again, knowing uh, your mushrooms and knowing uh, what to look for. Knowing the species is really the key. So those are the ones then, uh, then and um, what to look for. Are there other ones that we need to, to talk about that, as far as avoiding them before we get to, to the ones that are okay? Well, there's, um, there's the issue of what your pet is going to do. So dogs and cats like mushrooms that have kind of a fishy smell. And so some of them will go towards mushrooms in the, in the fiber cap genus. That's the genus Inosabe, drawn to the mushroom by its fishy smell. And those mushrooms are, are poisonous to people, but they're also poisonous to pets. So if your pet eats mushrooms, that pet should definitely be watched or ideally taken to the vet. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, when we started, when I said I've noticed more and more mushrooms just lately in the last couple of days and I have dogs and and when walking them, I'm always careful to keep them away. But I've I've often wondered that they don't they don't seem to really be interested in them. But I have been curious if dogs do eat them. They do. And there have been a fair number of pet fatalities because the animals are drawn to that those interesting odors. You're lucky your dogs aren't. <laughs> yeah, which is weird because one of my um, one of my dogs is a lab. He'll eat just about anything. Oh. But but luckily he doesn't he doesn't uh, seem to go to the mushrooms. So I will oh, I will put that good. in the win column. Uh, so those are, are things to keep in mind as well as far as uh, that uh, the smell of them and and what they kind of look like. Um, what about mushrooms then that uh, people want to forage want to 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 get these mushrooms that are growing in the wild? What should they look for in that case? I think my approach has been to basically pick just one species to specialize in at a time and make sure that you become familiar with that particular species and all its different stages of development. And initially, if you're going to eat a mushroom that you haven't eaten before, or even that you have, make sure it's well cooked and make sure that you only eat a small amount. So with that, after that initial warning, one of the really pretty mushrooms that's out all over the place in lawns is the um, shaggy mane. Um, that mushroom is, oh, I don't know, must be about eight centimeters or tall or so when it's completely mature. And it's shaped like an upside down U with a shaggy cap. And that one's fine. And again, like you said, following the rules, cooking it well and such? It is. It does have an interesting characteristic. If you pick it and put it in the fridge, it will turn into black mush within a day. But if you eat it right away while it's still fresh and firm, it's pretty much okay. There is another qualification, though. Um, Most mushrooms will take up heavy metals. Mm. And so if you're picking mushrooms in an area where there's a significant level of heavy metal contamination, 
that could cause problems over a long term, the long term if you keep eating those mushrooms. And would you know that or are that something else you kind of have to do your research? I think what I would personally do is just not eat mushrooms from uh, alongside a street or at least not eat them very frequently. Okay, that's good advice. I often hear people uh, going to places, especially maybe a year after maybe there's been a forest fire or something, and uh, going for the morels. Yes. Yes. Um, so, And that, that probably works. The trick is if you are on Crown land, as I understand it, you are allowed to collect mushrooms, and morels are delicious. They actually cause a large number of poisonings. Hmm. And but is that because of, of how they're prepared or? Can be. So mm-hmm. eating raw morels is a path to an illness with for, for many people. Even eating them cooked, though, there are a fair number of people who have a bad reaction. So I think uh, in this case, the advice is enjoy them, but don't eat too many of them at one time. And if you haven't tried them before, eat a small quantity and always cook them. All right. That is good advice. I know we could get into to so many more uh, mushrooms and talk about this, but I, I do want to make sure people know, I understand you are hosting a mushroom walk coming up uh, in November. So that sounds like that could be a place as well for people to get more information. Absolutely. So that's being held through the Beauty Biodiversity Museum. And uh, a person has to become a member of the museum in order to participate. But I hope a lot of people will join in and they'll be able to see some of these mushrooms and learn the characters that will help keep people safe. All right. A lot to, a lot to uh, take in before going out and foraging. Dr. Mary Burby, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.